This week on The Fulbright Project. We cannot understand all the things that are at work in this present moment, and that's the job of the historian. And if we leave it up to showing up in a college classroom, then we're going to miss a lot of people. If we leave it up to being taught in our elementary and secondary schools, then we're not going to give people the depth and the breadth of knowledge that they need. We absolutely have to meet people where they are and engage with the public. And as long as we stay isolated, high up in our ivory towers, then we aren't actually doing what we say we want to do. Power is orchestrated in society. And so if you, if I'm gonna spend my life uh, afraid that people are gonna think I'm biased against the powers that be, you know what, I am. No, I'll just admit that right now. That's the way it is, that's the way I view history now. Hello and welcome to the Fulbright Project. My name is Dan Elkin, and today I'm joined by Jared Pack. Hey, y'all. And Alex Marino. Great to be here. All right, guys. So the reason we're here today, we're going to be talking about the role of the historian in this current political climate. What is our job? What is our responsibility? Recently, Donald Trump had a, an interview in which he said, you know, why was there the Civil War and kind of opined that perhaps Andrew Jackson would have stopped it. And of course, this got historians pretty worked up. And so there was an article that came out in the New Republic by Graham Weiss entitled, Trump's Ignorance is Radicalizing U.S. Historians. And so I wanted to kind of talk today about, is that true? To what extent is that true? And what is the job of a historian in these moments? Because I think there's a lot of different perspectives within the field on how exactly do you approach this? And so I wanted to start off just kind of reading off the opening of the article because I think that it'll kind of set the stage for us. So Graham Weiss begins, Amy Greenberg didn't want to weigh in on Donald Trump. Ever since the president's election, which she found stunning and demoralizing, the Penn State professor and historian of antebellum America has tried to keep her head down. She gives her lectures. She does her research. She works on her forthcoming biography of former First Lady Sarah Childress Polk. But then... On Monday, Trump said, quote, People don't ask that question, but why was there the Civil War? He followed that up with a tweet claiming President Andrew Jackson, who died 16 years before the war started, saw it coming and would have never let it happen. Greenberg couldn't hold back. Prompted by an inquiry from CNN, she fired off a statement slamming Trump for profound historical ignorance. Ask any fifth grader why did the Civil War happen, that child can give you an answer, Greenberg wrote on Tuesday. Earlier in the morning, she had queried her own fifth-grade daughter, just to make sure. How dare Donald Trump state that? People don't ask that question, but why was there a civil war? Why could that one not have been worked out? Historians have been asking this since 1861. Nor, she added, was there any evidence that slaveholding Jackson saw the conflict coming. So, okay. There we have a historian, I think, kind of responding to Trump very directly. And so I want to ask you guys, and we can start with Alex, what was your reaction when you hear a U.S. president say something like that? Well, the day that Trump made that statement, I was actually teaching the Civil War in my survey class. And so I think as a historian, you can't ignore statements like this by politicians. 
But, you know, I think we also need to contextualize statements like this. For my students, I, I walked through the statement, uh, and they were preparing for their exams, where, of course, the cause of the Civil War was on that test. So we talked about what they knew about it, what they had learned about it. And then I talked about the truth, though, that, you know, in a week when they finished taking a U.S. history course in college, they will join a small group of Americans that have taken a college history class. And so that sometimes we have to remember that not everyone in the country has the same kind of training in history and that we can't assume that they do. And so that it's our job to educate, not just in the classroom, but also to the public at large. Jared, what do you think, especially in regards to the classroom? Well, I also had a student ask me about the comments that day. had a student kind of toward the beginning of class ask, so did you see what the president said this morning? And I said, oh, I saw that. I said it was the talk of our offices because it was. I, I remember first hearing it because of a series of confused and baffled expressions coming from a colleague next door. So I began to look to see what was going on, and then I saw this hit the news. And so I used it kind of like Alex is a teaching moment, because all of a sudden, the student's asking me this question and told me, she said, I knew you, you, it would have to have frustrated you. And it absolutely does. And because I spend so much time with my students trying to ask, get them to ask these questions, to understand this, I require them to write an essay on the final exam that asks them to look at the period from 1848 to 1860 to explain how we arrive at the Civil War and what are the key turning points in that process that move us from, from a politically contentious place to a divided country. And so, again, I think we have to encourage our students to engage in these types of questions, to help them understand that, no, this isn't the first time this question has been asked. And I think they realize that. It made me feel good that my students understood coming into it the historical inaccuracies of such a statement and knew already that it wasn't grounded in fact, at least not in actual fact, and that it wasn't a new and unique question that wasn't being asked. By the time the president made these statements, we had already been discussing the Civil War and the coming of the Civil War for about two weeks they had had plenty of conversations with me in the classroom to begin to understand that, no, this question is being asked. And so I think the big thing, and getting back to what Alex said, it's like it's our job to engage with them because increasingly this is a small group of the population that are critically having to engage with history and understand in more depth what actually is going on. Okay. So I think those, I think I, I, think I agree with, in large part, with a lot of what you're saying, but... There's always one thing that I always try to get back to, which is if, again, if we're not trained in history, if we're not trained in why these questions matter or how you go about answering these questions, I can't fault someone to ask the kind of overarching question of, does it really matter? Why does this matter? Why is what Trump says about the Civil War and Andrew Jackson, um, you know, why does it matter? Where does it even rank in the kind of list of other things that he has said? And so I think that's an interesting question that we could kind of get to is, you know, when people are struggling for health care or we have the crisis in the Middle East, why does Trump's opinion on the Civil War matter? And we can make this a little bit larger. Why does Barack Obama's opinion on history matter? Or President George W. Bush, former President Bush? Why would any of those people's opinions on history matter when we're facing real live 
crises. And I'll kind of jump in on this one as well. But do somebody want to kick us off with that? Well, I think the big thing, first and foremost, and the article really kind of gets to this, is that if nothing else, there is something very significant about the most powerful man in the world, the, the president of the United States, weighing in on these things. Whether or not it is actually the case, it conveys it conveys a message of the American, a rep- as a representation of the American people. It conveys a sense of accuracy by virtue of the office. You, I mean, the very nature of the position is such that when the president of the United States is speaking about American history, you would expect it to be correct. And so when it is clearly not cr- grounded in, in, in fact and reality, then that is dangerous for what it conveys to as a message of accuracy and authority. Alex, did you have anything you want to add in there before I jump in? Yeah, I think I think that this is one of th- this shows one of the things that makes Donald Trump a very different kind of president. In the past, presidents have been public servants. And so we have an expectation that not only do presidents have a deep understanding of history, uh, before assuming the nation's top leadership position, but they also have a sense of their place in the country's history, and that you know, as as citizens, we hope that the weight of the office and of our nation's history is on them as they move forward. That they're um, being, they're living up to the high expectations we have for presidents that they are continuing the legacy of our best presidents and that they've learned the mistakes of our worst presidents. And I, I don't think comments like this from the president give uh, confidence. I think that President Trump has a different kind of historical training that is very typical of his generation. His uh, knowledge base comes from K through 12 and college training that's very different from what we have today in the United States, mostly for changes in the historiography. Historians are writing about different aspects of American history now. But you also have uh, a very strong television education component. Uh, President Trump has shown time and time again that he gets his news, and I suspect also his history, from television. And so... Knowing that, I don't think these comments are really that unexpected coming coming from a non-public servant background. Yeah, and I think as far as, you know, Trump in many ways is unique in the way that he uses history. Um, and something that I think we've hit on here, though, but I want to I really kind of um, bring into focus is that a president using history is not unique. Just the way that Trump uses it kind of is. Uh, but certainly, I mean, to get... To this idea of presidents using, and I would say even in some cases abusing history, is not necessarily new. Um, I mean, if we want to go with Barack Obama, who very much positioned his presidency as part of this kind of long arch of justice, or we can go with George W. Bush, who definitely incorporated an almost kind of manifest destiny type of, of historical interpretation that the United States has an obligation to go forth and spread freedom. Um, that's very much grounded in certain historical interpretations. And I would also, I think Ronald Reagan was the master of, you know, painting the United States as this kind of shining city on a hill, which again, a historical interpretation that, again, is more, I think, in the public mindset. I think you brought this up, Alex. This is more 
of a, of a public understanding of U.S. history. And so I think this gets to the, the challenge that historians have is that how, how do we bring the public perception of U.S. history and how do we ground that in the more professional understanding of U.S. history in a way that doesn't silence conversation, but in a way that enhances it. And I think there's a, a particular quote in this article I wanted to read that I thought uh, was really good. But Trump also presents a challenge for historians. How to use their exper expertise to counter out tr counteract Trump's ignorance, but without appearing partisan. Right? And so this quote from an historian, you're entering into a very heated world with a very heated president, so you have to be careful not to be an advocate. It's very tempting for many people. It's difficult to figure out the proper tone with which to object to Trump's positions. Nobody wants to look biased. I find this question of bias extremely interesting because it's, it's a question that pervades the profession. Um, you know, is your research biased? Are you biased? Uh, what are you bringing to your, to your research or to your teaching? Um, and I think there's two spheres here we've got to understand. There's, there's our own personal research that we do, and then there's our teaching in the classroom. And so I wanted to, us to today flesh this out a little bit. What are we talking about with bias? Does it exist? How does it exist in both of those spheres? So let's kind of kick it off first with, with teaching. Does anybody want to take that up? Well, I think one of the first things we have to admit is that all of us as historians try to be objective, but we are never actually able to do that. But that's not unique. I mean, no one is able to completely and totally remove bias all the time. In fact, you know, I think by the very nature of what, what we do, like I teach my students, when they're looking at primary sources to investigate bias because everyone has it. It's just part of it. That said, I try to kind of play my cards pretty close to the chest and leave my students guessing. It always cracks me up when they, when they guess the complete opposite of where my politics actually lie. And I, I actually take great pride in that. I consider it a success in that I've done something right I, that, that I have in the process kept them completely guessing and kept my bias out of it. But the other thing I think is which way I lean kind of depends on the issues. And because for me personally in my own politics, the study of history is such that it causes you to look at things and, and, the, and the right ideas and what have been historically the best practices don't always line up with one party or another. I mean, and you think about it, things change over time. I had my students just the other day, we were discussing the, the rise of the two-party system, and I introduced the idea of positive government, this idea that, that the government is active and doing more things in the everyday lives of people in the name of the public good, and how that manifests itself in Henry Clay's American system in the 1820s. And I had my students, I asked my students, so what would happen if all of a sudden the government stopped building roads? And one of my students made a wise crack about roads in Oklahoma that was, that was rather funny and particularly relevant to a group of students studying in Northwest Arkansas. But the point is, everybody, regardless of their politics, agrees that it's the job of the government to build roads. But in 1824, that was the big, complex discussion. 
And I, I, I mention that simply to say that things change over time. As, as we look at different things, the terms of the debate change. We can't define issues clearly on one side or the other. And as historians, as we're talking about these things, in the classroom, it's my job to help students see that there are valuable ideas coming from both sides, to challenge them in their own political views, to, to not necessarily push mine upon them, but to help them see that just because they think one way or another, or they believe in one system, one ideology as opposed to the other, that there's value to be shared in all of it, and that we need to be engaging with these things rather than simply closing our minds to them. And to me, that's the biggest thing that we can do in, and where our own bias comes through is helping students see past the, the closed, rigid dichotomy that says my views are right and another are, have to be wrong. Yeah, I mean, to speak for myself, and then we can go kind of go over to Alex, but I would kind of agree with this in that, you know, it's always interesting in the classroom, typically my students cannot predict my politics. And I think in a way it's because, if I'm being honest, they're not equipped to predict my politics. Um, they have an understanding and a narrative that most Americans have of this kind of left-right dichotomy, as you mentioned, or this, this liberal-conservative dichotomy. And of course, my politics don't fit into that narrative. And as we go on more and more podcast episodes, I'm sure you'll figure this out. But this is, it doesn't fit neatly into, this, into these narratives. And so my class is spent looking at, you know, where does power originate from? How is it being used in society? How does that feed into race, class, and gender distinctions? Um, and in that way, I am an equal opportunity criticizer of the traditional narrative. One of the things that I always want my students to come out of my class with is, you know, this idea that, you know, I always use this saying, it's kind of funny, it makes them laugh. But, you know, I say we're in this narrative, right, where one political party wants to, you know, drown puppies and the other one wants to drown kittens and we kind of have to choose. Uh, and I think that's just a false narrative. It's fake. It doesn't really get to the actual problems of society. It's just a way to kind of organize people into these kind of groups um, that, that, that they're their political party. Um, and so I try to tell my students to kind of try and break that down and actually think about policy and where it originates and why it originates. Um, and so, you know, it's always interesting because everybody gets put through the ringer in my history class. My students never know what my politics are, you know. Uh, they're like, ah, is he left? Is he right? I really don't know. Um, but I hope by the time they get out of that classroom, they're rethinking what politics are in a, in a different way. Because I think a lot of what uh, we face in society today is this dichotomy, as Jared mentioned. And it's really, I think, the historian's job to try and break that down or complicate it or, or reorient it. I don't know, but something, something like that. Alex? So I am a historian of American foreign relations. And there's a belief amongst foreign policy professionals, those in the foreign service, that truly diplomacy uh, is or at least should be nonpartisan, and that conducting relations with other countries is based on longstanding uh, terms of those relationships and about meeting the actual needs of each country, and that that shouldn't be inherently political. I think sometimes I teach directly to that appeal. You know, Henry Kissinger served both Democrats and Republicans before he became so intimately connected to the Nixon White House and to the Republican Party that that's all we can ever imagine. And certainly Democrats, even after 
his tenure as National Security Advisor and Secretary of State. Democrats have agreed with Kissinger on a number of things. That's not to say that uh, foreign relations don't become political, that we can't disagree on how to conduct foreign policy. But it's my job in the classroom to lay out what has been effective, what has not been effective, and to teach students to start thinking about foreign relations in a way where they can be critical, because it's something that uh, most Americans simply don't engage in. And so it's my job to give literacy, to give a window into this new kind of facet of um, the American nation, and hopefully that they will they will have their own opinions and their own feelings and create their own values about foreign relations, and that hopefully those are different from you know their parents or what political parties are telling them. And I, you know, you can't avoid your own biases altogether. But I think trying to play uh, history as a what worked and what didn't is the easiest way to appear unbiased, I would say, uh, with students while still helping them engage and still helping them assess, well, but do the ends justify the means? If something is successful, if it works, is it still worth it? And I think those are things that students and I think all Americans are equipped to make those kind of decisions. And so if we put them in a situation where they can use their own moral compass to evaluate policies, I think most people will do it. I think what's interesting is this theme that's running, I think through what all three of us said, this idea of neutrality, this idea of being unbiased. And I think it's important to kind of create that in the classroom because I think in a classroom um, if you come in with this obvious agenda, not only are there some moral questions with that, but I also think it's just a terrible way to teach. Um, it just uh, just puts them on their heels and just creates an environment that doesn't doesn't really work for teaching and, and engaging in critical thinking. Um, but away from the classroom to the second aspect of this, which is Dan. Yeah. Before we move on, I, one one more thing I would kind of like to add here, and is that one thing I generally end up doing toward the end of the semester is at some point, most semesters, I generally do reveal my, my own political bias um, as, part of the, as part of our, our discussion in class. And I, I'm just really explicit with it. I, I'll ask them to kind of, well, all right, so y'all heard me talk all semester. What do you think my politics are? And then eventually I, I tell them. And I, I, I generally do that as a way to kind of help them understand that it's okay to not toe the line completely. Mm-hmm. I think it's helpful for them to understand that while I may be critical of things that that are part of my my general party's platform, that that's okay. That you don't have to fit this mold. I think it's good for them to sometimes hear that I say these things not as someone who's trying to bash them, but as someone who is part of these who's part of this group, who's part of this general political ideology, but who is able to critically think about some things and engage with them in ways that leads me to disagree or to acknowledge inherent contradictions. And it's not to say that those are bad, but just to acknowledge their existence. And so I found that at a certain point, the most effective way I can teach and reach students is to just be upfront with them. 
Now, I don't do that day one. We've got to build a rapport before I get there. But I think at some points I have found it to be a helpful thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that is a good lead-in to, to where I'm getting with this this idea of, of neutrality and trying to achieve it. Um, I think in the classroom, again, I think, I think you lay it out perfectly, a way that you can go about doing that um, that I think is just important for cultivating, cultivating the correct kind of teaching environment. But to pivot a little bit to this idea of, okay, when Trump says something that we know is you know factually wrong, or at least the way he's using it is just uh, incorrect, how do we exactly... How do we get out? How do we address that? You know, is it our job as historians to address that? Is it our job to go into the public sphere and, and have this conversation? And I think this is, and we'll get into it, uh, I'll bring you guys in on this, but just to give a spiel on this real quick, I think this is exactly where the profession has to have a very frank discussion with itself. Because we're in this moment where the humanities in general, history specifically, it's always being questioned, you know, what is its relevancy? Why does it matter? Why do business majors need to take a history class? It doesn't matter. It doesn't affect them. It doesn't increase their pay. It doesn't give them a job skill that they can use, right? And so you've seen, um, you know, talks about cutting funding to humanities, cutting funding to history, cutting uh, incentives for students to take history classes or humanities classes. And, and I think in some ways, I think we do this to ourselves a little bit as historians, in that we don't go out and have frank public discussions. You know, to the extent that we are uh, in the public sphere, we tend not to try and engage with what's ever going on at the moment. You know, if it's Trump saying something, there's many historians in our field, and I respect them, I respect their position. There's many historians in our field that say, you know what, it's not our job to comment on this. It's not our job to correct President Trump's history. That's not our position. Our position is to do our own research um, and, and build knowledge within the academy. And I think this is, that's the, we need to have the discussion of, okay, in a moment where we're facing this kind of challenge to our relevancy, perhaps this is the moment to show why, right? If we see Trump as a unique moment in our history, and perhaps he's not, but what is the role of the, of the, the historian then? Is it simply to do our own research in our own kind of silos in the academy, or is it to go out and start having these public discussions? And I, I think that's very interesting um, um, to have. Do you guys have an opinion on this? Well, I think part of the hesitancy to move into a public discussion about it is uh, inevitably what the public demands, what the public wants to know is what's coming next. And that's the one thing that as historians we can't provide. And we know all too well how... how, how how often people are wrong. In the end, what our credibility rests on is how well we're able to conjure up or represent the past and to instill a sense that what we are teaching is truth, what we're writing about is truth. Now, we, we can have a discussion about uh, objective truth, but I think there's a real fear that we hurt our credibility uh, in doing that. Now, you know, there's still that saying that People like to say all the time, they like to tell historians this all the time, oh, this must be so neat because you can see how history is, is um, uh, repeating itself. You know, it's this phrase that I don't even, I, I have a hard time even remembering history repeats itself because as a historian, I absolutely don't agree with that. You know, the, history gives me no ability to tell anyone what's going to happen next. Now, 
do I have certain skills and certain training and a certain amount of knowledge about foreign relations where I could make not just meaningful comments, but provide context to those that are interested? Absolutely. And I think that's a role where every historian needs to, as they are comfortable, provide context to the public, not just to their students, not just the people reading their books, to make people more informed so they can have more informed decisions. And it's I don't think the, the role necessarily is to jump on to CNN or Fox News or MSNBC and be a talking head on a panel um, because in the end, that is a form of entertainment more than it is a way to be educated. But can we get out there with podcasts? Should we be writing letters to the editor? Should we be engaging more in blogs on web pages uh, in writing articles for the public? I think that's absolutely right, Alex. At the end of the day, if we keep our knowledge contained to ourselves, what good are we to society? I mean, how are we ever going to change this notion that it's a that it's okay to cut humanities budgets at uni- in universities? You know, historians we we tend to be a pretty insulated group. We write our books that we know the only people who are going to read are other academics. We go to conferences that are only attended by other academics. We write articles by, that are published in journals that are being read by even more specialized academics. We tend to be a very large group, and the only time we engage with the public is when we step into the classroom. And I think we do a disservice there. We certainly need to teach our students. But as Alex said, there's a very, there's a very big value in helping people understand the context. I mean, we make our living by taking context and applying and applying it. I tell my students day one, we do not under, we do not study history so that we can recall facts and dates and that you can know random trivia that'll help you at a trivia night at a bar. That's not why we study history. We study the, the past to better understand the present, to understand how we have arrived at this moment we are in. And we cannot understand the present moment until we understand where we have been and where we have come from. And that's so important for all of us. That's why in universities across the country, American history courses are required of all undergraduates. It's not because they, they have this desperate desire to employ history professors. Because we've all seen, all historians have seen the numbers on the job market. We know there's no big desire to give us jobs. It's because... People fundamentally understand that there needs to be a knowledge of our past to understand our present. And that's so important. And when we stop understanding the present, the past, we cannot understand the present. We cannot understand all the things that are at work in this present moment. And that's the job of the historian. And if we leave it up to showing up in a college classroom, then we're going to miss a lot of people. If we leave it up to being taught in our elementary and secondary schools, then we're not going to give people the depth and the breadth of knowledge that they need. We absolutely have to meet people where they are and engage with the public. And as long as we stay isolated, high up in our ivory towers, then we aren't actually doing what we say we want to do. If, if our real objective is to help people better understand the past so that they understand the present. Absolutely. I could not agree more. Um, obviously, uh, our listeners cannot uh, see this, but I was shaking my head very vigorously 
uh, especially to what Jared was saying about the idea that historians are such an insular group. Really, the, the, the point of this podcast, the reason that Jared, Alex, myself, uh, Michael Powers, who will be joining us uh, in future episodes, one of the reasons we've put this together is to kind of hope that we can put the voice of historians out there, even if it's just ours in a very small way, uh, but hopefully this will grow into something bigger. But as Jared, I think, put it perfectly, to meet people where they are. I mean, I think that's just the key. I mean, you have to kind of go and where are these conversations having happening? You know, where are people discussing history? Go there, right, and have something to say about it and have, bring something in conversation that you can hopefully enhance it um, since that's our skill set. And I think that's that's so so important. And I, I'll leave you with this, is that I think a reason um, a lot of historians don't engage and they stay in the, the ivory tower, so to speak, is there's the fear of, well, they don't want to get political. Um, but I'll leave you with this. My opinion on that is that everything is political. I mean, choosing not to engage is a political decision. Um, and so I'm not someone who kind of buys into this, this idea um, of, of, of trying to avoid politics in some kind of weird way. I, it, again, you'll get this more and more from me, but the way I see things is that power is orchestrated in society. And so if you, if I'm going to spend my life uh, afraid that people are going to think I'm biased against the powers that be, you know what? I am. I'll just admit that right now. That's the way it is. That's the way I view history. Now, you know, Jared, Alex might have different opinions on that, and we're going to get into that more on this podcast on, on exactly those kinds of questions. And hopefully uh, we'll get to hear a lot from you on our Facebook page as well as Twitter, um, at Fulbright Project. And we really wanted you to join into this conversation. We don't just want us to be us on the talking head model. Um, you know, that's not, not our goal here. So I'll leave you with this. I'll leave you with one final quote from this article that I think sums this up, what Alex, Jared, and myself were trying to say. Some historians fear that given how partisanship increasingly dictates what Americans believe, many Americans will believe Trump's alternative history. Before you know it, we may have a new term, history deniers, said Yale University historian David Blight. Avoiding such a future, quote, may mean more of us have to become public spokespeople about history than we were in the past. When the most powerful man in the world speaks historical nonsense, we have to speak out and say so. Thank you for joining us. <laughs>